So we're still in our series, God in the City, and I have the privilege to be doing part six. I don't know how long we're going, but this is part six today. Are you enjoying the series? Oh, my word. I have enjoyed it so much. Just getting to unpack God's heart for the city, and God, which just means it's unpacking God's heart for people. Because where do people live? In the city and the country and the islands. But right now we're focusing on the city. And to remind ourselves, you know, we keep hearing in the news in different places, the city is dying. Or when you talk about Casino Road, people are like, oh, I don't think I can go there. I live there and I love it. Um, But you know what? Truly, God has not left the city. He has not left us. What was last week? Easter, declaring the resurrection life of Jesus. He's not dead. He's alive and living. And he's mindful of each one of us. So he's living in Seattle. And believe it or not, he's living on Casino Road. Because he lives in us. And we're here, right? Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the honor it is to get to stand and just share what you've placed on my heart. Just as what was shared in the Psalms, what was shared through worship. Father, it's all because of you. And it's all for you. And we just thank you, God, that you, the creator of the universe, would choose to partner with us. And would choose to impart your presence upon us. So, Holy Spirit, I invite you. I invite you to help me to share what you've given me to share, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So, our main text is going to be Jeremiah 29.7, which we'll get to in a minute. But before we jump into that, I want to set the stage a little bit. As I was preparing, you know, you read the Bible, and I've read the Old Testament and read the New Testament, and And you hear these stories in Sunday school, but then when you look at them fresh, you're like, oh, wow, I didn't put those, link those together. Oh, goodness. So because I had an aha moment, I'm going to share with you, and hopefully you will too. Jeremiah 29 is a letter to the Jewish exiles who had been forcibly taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar. They were held in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. I'm not 70 yet, but that's a long time. That's more than my lifetime. And not only did he take them, but he and his armies destroyed Jerusalem in the process. But part of this is throughout this time, God had been repeatedly speaking through the prophet Jeremiah for 23 years. That he's speaking to the people, pleading with the Israelites, saying, I am the one true God. Remember? Remember the Ten Commandments? Remember that you're supposed to serve me and serve me only? Now, if you don't change your ways, there's going to be consequences. Those of you that are parents, does that sound familiar? Okay, Eli, Luke, if you don't follow this, there's going to be consequences. Sometimes they change and sometimes they don't. And then there's consequences. I was the same as I was growing up. So sadly, yet again, the Israelites did not change their ways. 
And they did not listen to the voice of the Lord. So I want to start in Jeremiah 25, verses 1 through 11. And let me just show you the context here. Starting in verse 25. The word came to Jeremiah concerning all of the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people of Judah and to those living in Jerusalem, For twenty-three years, from the thirteenth year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And though the Lord has sent all his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, the recurring theme here, you have not listened or paid any attention. They said, turn now, each of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land the Lord gave you and your ancestors forever and ever. Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them. Do not arouse my anger with what your hands have made, then I will not harm you. But you did not listen to me, declares the Lord, and you have aroused my anger with what your hands have made, and you have brought harm to yourselves. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the earth and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against the land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. I will banish them from the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom the sound of millstones, and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. That's like the biggest time out I have ever heard of. That's legit. Oh, my goodness. God used, and the thing was, God used Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon as his agent of judgment against Israel for their sins of idolatry and their rebellion against him. In his book, A Theology as Big as the City, Ray Bakke says, and Pastor Chris Pepler has been referencing this throughout our series, while the Jews grumbled in their Babylonian ghettos a thousand miles from Jerusalem, wallowing as victims in their own hopelessness, the prophet proclaimed a bigger picture. Is God an evil father? No, he's not. He's a good father. And as good parents... Do we need to create boundaries for our children? Because we're mean? Our kids might think we're mean. But no, because we're looking after their well-being. So the Israelites were at a point of despair. They felt like God had abandoned them. But God always, always brings hope and restoration. He always makes a way for life. And God is about to provide a pathway for them to prosper. We've been talking about Seattle. We watched the video about Seattle is dying. We've been talking about, we talk a lot about Casino Road because that's our neighborhood, right? That's our community. It would be easy to feel hopeless and kind of looking around with the homelessness situation, with bondages of addiction, just with all this negative stuff that we see over and over. But there's one little phrase I like to cling to, but God. Remember, he always makes a way for life. 
He always brings hope and restoration if you choose it. Right? I'm so thankful. So thankful. Let's look at that message of hope through Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the letter that he sent to the exiles in Babylon, and he sent it through this man named Elasa to come and bring it. And I was thinking about that, and I just thought, you know, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have email. They didn't have a vlog or a blog or texting. So it had to be declared and proclaimed in the streets. So he had to go out and just be like yelling it. Call everyone. There's a message from the word of the Lord. I have a word of the Lord for you. And remember, they were in exile. So maybe it had been a while since they'd heard his voice. And now all of a sudden it's like, gather everyone you know. And then they would have to have different points for it to be declared. And here is what was declared. We're going to start in verse 4 of chapter 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those that I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease. I was thinking about that. Can you imagine? You've left the promised land. You've been forcibly carried off you're stuck in these ghettos as they called it and you're thinking god now you're telling us you brought us here are you kidding me it was that wicked king nebi that brought us here and but by the way you didn't save us in fact you've abandoned us and we don't even belong here and now you're telling us to settle down oh no we don't plan on staying here that long You're telling us to increase in number? Yeah, no. No, we're getting out of here. But what God was telling them, stop dwelling on death. Does that remind you of some of your life (laughs) at times? At times, you know, we've got the high places and the low places. And at times it's like you just want to dwell here and you're just tempted to dwell on your own lack, on your loss, on being the victim just having a pity party but what god is saying don't do it don't take on a victim mentality it helps nothing instead pursue life build plant build houses plant gardens increase in number celebrate increase do not decrease here's the key grow and flourish where you're planted It's a good reminder in every season of our life, huh? at least for me. And then in verse 7, it goes on to say, not only are you to settle and increase in Babylon, but in verse 7 it says, also, means don't forget this one. I'm going to tell you something else, and this is going to be good. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. What? Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now he's taking the next step. Not only is he saying to like bloom where you're planted, but now he's saying, I want you to pray for your captors. What in tarnation? Pray for your captors? Really? They're like, we're supposed to seek peace for them? Are they giving us peace? No. We're the victims here. 
They should be the ones bowing and coming to us because we are the children of God. And they have stolen us. They didn't have the right to take us in their mind. What about your promise, God? We shouldn't even be here. Little did they know that God was giving them a key. He was teaching them and telling them, do not play the victim. Because when you play the victim, what happens? You allow yourself to be victimized. That's not okay. Never. His pathway to wholeness was to pray for the peace and prosperity of the place where they were, of the place where we are. And whether you embrace it or not, were they embracing that? No. Was it easy for them? No. Is it easy to pray for those that are mean to you or that treat you wrongly? Not easy. Is it right? It's right. They couldn't afford to let themselves be isolated. They couldn't afford to be independent because God was showing them that their prosperity depended on the prosperity of others. Have you thought about sometimes in our life, we strive, we strive to get ahead. We strive to make that dollar. We strive to whatever. And then we, sometimes you step back and you discover there was a wake that you left climbing on where you needed to go. God's like, don't do it. He was trying to reveal to them that, in fact, they were not victims. But have you thought about maybe they were actually on a mission from God? Because didn't it say that he put them there into exile? So I guess they were on a 70-year Babylonian missions trip, so to speak. For Jesus has commissioned us not to be isolated. And in Mark 16:15, he even says, "Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation." The word all kind of takes away that isolation, takes away that us and them, I'm just going to choose what I like and I'm going to just forget about the rest of it. It's all. Are we an all? I'm an all. My grandma um was would share Jesus every time she went everywhere she went and she would talk about whosoever and my grandma would be like I'm a whosoever that means it's me I'm an all and in some small way this story um, reminds me of almost 11 years ago when I left my job at World Concern Um, some of you know that I worked at a Christian relief and development organization which basically means we reached out to the international poor and the poorest of the poor was their focus and um it's a ministry of Krista, which I don't know if any of you have listened to the Christian radio station, Spirit, but that's also ministry of Krista. Christ, um, Katrina and Sarah both um, teach school at King Schools, which is also that. Anyway, side note. I was there for 12 years, and throughout that 12 years, I wore a lot of hats, but one of the privileges I had was to be able to go out and speak and share the stories of the poorest of the poor around the world. I was able to speak out and bring awareness to trafficking and to poverty and um, just the 
um, oppression of women and children around the world, just things that were so dear and close to my heart. I got to lead teams and take people internationally to Cambodia and Bolivia and Laos and just different places and bring them to see um, the work and be, make connection. So my job was pretty global. I'd always dreamed of getting married, of having a family. As a matter of fact, God had just placed it on my heart and told me that I would be married, that I would have kids. Side note was I was didn't get married until I was 36, so that was a long journey to wait. And secondly, I was told that physically I would never be able to bear children. But I knew that God had promised me. So when I was 39 years old, David and I miraculously got pregnant, and we were able to have our son Eli, whom you all know. So I left a successful career, and I was walking in my heart for the nations, and my heart for the poor, my heart for people, really. And I went from this global focus to I was stuck in my living room on Casino Road. Nothing against Casino Road. But felt it was more this isolation of being stuck at home and it felt a bit like being exiled and I didn't love it so in the midst of this great joy to Eli it was a really hard season in my life it's kind of embarrassing to say that because here I had this miracle this promise this child who is amazing and is a gift from the Lord but I was focused on my loss, and there were some extra circumstances in that. I was recovering some. I had a physically um, complicated and hard delivery, so I had a physical issues I was dealing with, and just the year before, I had lost my mom to cancer, and so I was also grieving the fact that I had this new baby, and I didn't have my mama to share it with, him with. So I was focused just on death, I was doing just what the Israelites were doing. Led me into like an identity crisis of such because I was used to being around lots of people every day. Being able to share the heart and, and the vision that I had. And, you know, everybody was always like, good job. That's amazing. I wish I had your job. Oh, you know, and you just get to be part of that process to here I am with Eli at the house, David's at his work. And for those of you that have been moms, it's not glamorous, especially not at the beginning. It's pretty thankless at times, actually, because you have to be put on the back burner because whatever that baby needs, that's, that's what you do. And it's wonderful. But I got to the place that I, I told David, it's terrible, it's so embarrassing, I'm just going to tell you everything. I told David, I says, honey, I love you, and I love Eli, but I hate my life. He's just like, he basically looked me in the eyes, and he's got, he's like, you know what? I don't know what's happened to you, but I miss my wife, and you need to go and spend some time with Jesus, because something here has to change. If I had laser beams for eyes right then, he... He would have been vapor, I'm telling you. But it is a good thing that God did not equip us with laser beams because 
We wouldn't use them in the right spot. Because just like God, David was leading me to Jesus where I would find my pathway to life. Because I was stuck in death. And he loves me so much and loves my family and knew the call that he had on my life to love those around me. That he's like, the devil is not going to take her out because she is just starting. What she thinks is dead is not. It is alive and it's going to be released and you watch. Anyway, so then fast forward to about six years ago. God woke David up in the middle of the night. Can I just say I'm so grateful for this man? It took him a long time to find me. <laughs> but I'm grateful he did. I'm so thankful he did. I could not have married better. I couldn't. Anyway, I digress. So he woke David up in the middle of the night and placed this church on his heart. And it was pastors Josh and Michelle Ferguson at the time and placed Josh Ferguson on his heart. And he woke up. I got up early for work and I woke up with him and it was like four in the morning. He's like, honey, I've been up praying and I think we're supposed to go to South Everett Foursquare. It's like, I think you're just supposed to pray for them. (laughs) Fast forward. We've been here for six years. I love it. I feel like I found my family. In each one of you. Isn't God good? He's so good like that. He's so good like that. So in 2007, well, 2008 actually, I felt like my call to the nations had died. But looking back and look at me now, God placed me right in the very city of the heart to where the nations reside many nations live on this street some people have to travel I get to just go mile not even oh my goodness but there was a moment in time just like the Israelites I had to have an attitude adjustment I had to choose I could have chosen to just stay in the molly grubs, as my mom used to say. Um, but God is like, I have something better for you. I have something better for your family. I have something better for your community. And I want to use you as a piece. Just a piece. I'll be a piece. I had to realize that there was a life to live for me to live. There was a community for me to be a part of. And there was a son for me to raise. I had gone from what I felt I had lost and I embraced the vision for my city and my family. I decided to pursue and choose life. Worth it. Worth it. We have to let go of that victim mentality that's so easy to fall into. Because there are serious circumstances we find ourselves in. And there are people that just and things that just are not fair. So we can be justified in our feelings. Is justification the way to go? No. We need to let go of that victim mentality and look to the Lord for fresh vision, fresh direction. It's our choice. Are we going to be a victim 
or are we going to be a visionary? Victim or visionary? I choose visionary. It's way more fun. Way more fun. As Chris Pepler shared during the week two of our series in The God Who Plays, he shared a statement that really, really stuck with me. He said, The eyes through which we view our city will impact the way we choose to interact with it. And the way we choose to interact with our cities will impact the trajectory of our cities. It's like perspective, right? Attitude. Partnership. Unity. The enemy would want us to wallow in our own circumstances and focus on what we don't have. But we can look, lift up our eyes and look to the things that are ahead, the things that he has. So let's break this down. What is this peace that he's talking about in Jeremiah 29.7? As I was looking at it, another word for peace is shalom. I looked it up, and the common Western definition of shalom was the absence of conflict or war. That's good. But when you look at the Hebrew, it means so much more. I found this article called The True Meaning of Shalom by Doug Hershey. I'd never heard of Doug Hershey, but he is an author, a conference speaker, and he is an expedition leader for an organization called Ezra Adventures, and they lead tours into Israel. Well, he explained it really well, and I'm going to read it so I get it correct. Shalom is taken from the root word shalom, which means to be safe in mind, body, or estate. It speaks of completeness and fullness or a type of wholeness that encourages you to give back, to generously repay something in some way. True biblical shalom refers to an inward sense of completeness or wholeness, and although it can describe the absence of war, a majority of biblical references refer to an inner completeness and tranquility. And in Israel today, when you greet someone, you say hello or goodbye, you say shalom. And what you're literally saying is, may you be full of well-being, or may health and prosperity be upon you. Would that like change everything if that's how we greeted people? Not this, hi, how are you? I'm fine. And hi, how are you is really good. So don't stop asking people how they're doing. But if we were to just say, you know, shalom. I am praying for your well-being. That's like every part of you. If this is the way we understand biblical peace, then suddenly many verses would take on a whole new meaning. With this Hebrew thought of shalom in mind, let's look at a common scripture in the Beatitudes where Jesus spoke about peace. In Matthew 5, 9, Jesus tells us, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In this verse, Jesus is not referring to mediators or political negotiators, but he's talking about those who carry that inward sense of the fullness and the safety that's only available through sonship with God at your core. In the biblical Hebrew understanding of shalom, there's a point at which, this is my favorite, there's a point at which that Doug Hershey says that you have so much shalom in you that it just 
spills out from you and is repaid or rendered to others. I had to stop when I was reading that. I was like, God, that's what I want. I want to be so filled with you that I don't even have to say anything. And I can go up to somebody and hug them and they would know that you love them. Because you don't just love me. I'm just a piece. But you love all of creation. Remember we talked about all earlier? You love all. And if different people start being so filled with shalom that they are spilling on others, that's when you see the world change. Anyway. So as you make others peaceful and inwardly complete, that makes you a peacemaker. Jesus said these peacemakers will be called sons of God. Jesus was called the son of God. So by sharing God's uncontainable peace with others, we become like Jesus. Do we have to wear a billboard sign? Nothing against billboard signs. We just are. We just love. Changes things. Just like the Israelites, I had to change my perspective of the city. Change my perspective of my life. And living in the city can be a complex endeavor. On the positive side, you have easy access to resources, food, shopping, entertainment. It's easy to find transportation. Well, at least transportation is accessible. On the other hand, living in the city makes you, forces you to stop and grapple with situations that you may rather not deal with. Issues like homelessness, substance abuse, Addictions, mental illness, and the list goes on and on. The city forces us to grapple with ideas, choices, and philosophy that may not even line up with our belief system. On my recent plunge experience while out on the search and rescue vans with the Union Gospel Mission, the red vans they call the love vans, I love that. We stopped in an alleyway in the U District. And it was at one of the needle collection sites. And this was one of those. It just hit me with a ton of bricks. It was the closest that I'd ever been to the opioid pandemic. For the first time in my life, I came face to face with a gentleman that was fully under the influence of heroin. Talk about uncomfortable. And it wrecked me. Because here was this precious creation of God. Not in his right mind. Smelling of his own waste. His eyes were dark. And his pupils were like dancing back and forth. And not only that, it was really really apparent that he was dealing with some demonic stuff at the same time. And I stood there... To be able to hand him a sandwich and cocoa and just felt like, I can't fix you. I want to fix you. I want to bring you home. Because you don't have to live like that. But it's not my job. It is my job to love. And it is my job to not be afraid. And it is my job to look him in the eyes and be like, you matter. Because you do. 
Every, all. Remember all. The heart of God is for all. Anyway, it just broke my heart so much to see in living color of how brokenness and the bondage of addiction could drag somebody so low to hopelessness and despair. So in the city, we can find ourselves interacting with people who believe different than us, who make different choices than us. But during that process, you realize we're really not that different. Like that guy in the alleyway. He's not different than me. His life has led him down a different road. But he's still precious. He still is on the heart of God. And God has risen up organizations like the Union Gospel Mission in different places around the world in different cities to come and say, you matter, can I give you a sandwich? Can I give you a blanket? Can I give you some hot cocoa? Oh, and by the way, can we take you with us? But they have to choose. We have to choose. You realize that people that are different than you aren't necessarily scary. You guys that know my kids, well, their mama never meets a stranger, so my children never meet a stranger. We can go anywhere, and my kids will talk to anybody, and I love it. I love it. I remember one time with Luke when he was little and we were at Fred Meyer, our Fred Meyer, right there. I'm a little directionally challenged, apparently. Um, but at Fred Meyer and I was talking to a, a gentleman and um, out sitting on the side there, a homeless gentleman, and he was talking to Luke and he reached out his arms and I just let him hold Luke. And Luke hugged him. And I, I was like, But we come to the realization that it's not just us. I mean, it's not just me and what I think because I know everything. Those are the people I'm going to interact with. Because if they wear white jackets, like me and my sister and Danessa, we're in. And Carol, I mean, and uh, Karen. Anyway, we're in. But those people that aren't wearing white, forget it. Remember the all? I think sometimes, as the church, we um, sometimes we think we need to separate ourselves to keep ourselves, I don't know, holy or something. As if we could even keep ourselves holy. <laughs> but if you look at the light of life of Jesus, he did just the opposite. He went to the tax collector's house. He allowed a former prostitute to wash his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. He spent time among the people preaching and bringing good news to them. He healed the sick. He set free those that were bound by demonic influence. He brought hope to the hopeless. He brought life to the dead. He brought health to broken places. And he wasn't afraid to reach out and touch them. He wasn't afraid to love them. And he always brought hope and he still always brings hope he was confident in who he was 
and who his father was. And the enemy would want us to say, like, oh, you can't mix with those people over there. And you can put anybody in that category as those people over there. Let's stay over here where it's safe and clean, quote unquote. That's living an inclusive life. I mean, an exclusive life, not the inclusive life that God has planned for us. All, remember the all. And that is why we pray for peace. We pray for shalom in the city. Because we want to impart wholeness and for people to be safe in their minds and in their bodies. To be complete in him. The scripture also speaks of praying for prosperity. So I checked into that. I was like, so what does prosperity mean? It doesn't say pray for the peace and the wealth of the city. But prosperity encompasses so much more than wealth. In fact, if you look up the biblical definition of prosperity, it really doesn't include material wealth at all. Strong's Concordance defines it as shalom. There you go. The peace and prosperity, shalom, shalom. And another word is favor. And favor means grace, that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness, goodwill, bounty, and reward. That's a mouthful. Because it's all-encompassing. Jesus says in Matthew 6 that we're to store up treasures in heaven and we're to seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things will be added. Pastor Pepler challenged me to read the four Gospels and look at it through the eyes of Jesus and how he ministered and the characteristics that he displayed. And in doing so, over and over and over again, you see Jesus had compassion. Jesus loved. He noticed people. He would stop everything for the one. He wasn't afraid to touch the unclean or reach out to people out in the marginals. He wasn't afraid to be seen with those that were considered filthy, corrupt, or dirty. He came and he loved all of humanity. Actually, his fight was with the religious people, not the unsaved. Because he came to seek and to save that which is lost. He had compassion on them, and he healed them all. You know, I was thinking about it, all. It's like my favorite word right now. He healed them all. And did you know, if Jesus came and healed them all, that means they weren't all his followers. So he didn't just pick and choose the people that liked him. It's like, oh, Eric, you like me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something for you. You know? He didn't say that. All. He healed them all. And we see this story so beautifully played out in Luke with the story of Zacchaeus. The story is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, Do you see Jesus? He's going to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, 
Here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So Zacchaeus was a tax collector. That was not an honorable profession. The fact it notes that he was wealthy screams of corruption. Tax collectors more often than not would collect much more taxes than the law allowed them to take. So they would pay Rome what was due and pocket the rest. So I was thinking about it. So the thing about Zacchaeus, he had heard about this this master. He'd heard about this man who was doing good for people. And he was compelled to go and see him. And I would suppose that it, it mentions that he was short in stature, but I would say he was also short in friends. Tax collectors were not popular. And dare I say, he was probably despised and even hated. But that being the case, I don't think the crowd would just be like, ooh, here's Zacchaeus, let's move out of the way, let's let him go to the front because he's short. Because he wants to see Jesus. Doubt it. So instead, he climbed up a tree so that he could see but also stay a safe distance from the crowds. And as I mentioned before, Jesus was intentional. He was seeking out those who were ready for an encounter with him. He noticed Zacchaeus in that tree, number one. Number two, he stopped. So he stopped the entire procession and took notice on Zacchaeus. He called him by name. He didn't just say, hey, dude in the tree, come down here so I can see you. He called him by name. He knew him. And then he asked, you know, he didn't just say, no, wait a minute. Let me back up a second. He told Zacchaeus, I'm coming over to your house today. Not like, do you think someday you could ask me over? We could open up our schedule. He's like, I'm coming to your house today. And of course, it caused an uproar. How could Jesus identify with, let alone be seen with the likes of Zacchaeus? He's a thief. Doesn't Jesus know he's a thief? One encounter with Jesus and Zacchaeus' life was forever changed. And so much so that it says in verse 8, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, I'm going to repeat it. Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. One encounter with Jesus brought instant repentance and instant recompense to the taxpayers of that city. So the cool thing is Zacchaeus' life was changed, but not only was his life, but that entire city. Because think about it. It says in the Bible, the very first sentence, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. This wasn't even his destination. He was going through. But it was Zacchaeus' destiny. It was Jericho's destiny. Because that day, one touch with Jesus, everything changed. God's plan all along was to touch Zacchaeus' life. So that Zacchaeus could then in turn 
touch the community that he had robbed from. So do you think God could use us to change a community? Change a city? Use a robber, a thief. Jesus had a way of changing the way people viewed things. They were looking for a Messiah that would come like a soldier. They're like, Rambo, we're waiting for Rambo. He's coming. I know he's coming, and he's going to just change everything. Did Jesus come like Rambo? Instead, with Jesus, they were met face to face with God in flesh. He wasn't who they expected him to be. He didn't have a machine gun. He didn't have a plan of, I'm just going to knock them all down and we're going to just overthrow the government. He was compassionate. He was kind. He healed them. He delivered them. He forgave them. Their lives were changed when their perspective on the kingdom of God changed. The very way they thought of God was transformed. And as I quoted um, Pastor Chris earlier, the eyes through which we view our city will impact the way we choose to interact with it. As we focus on praying to the Lord for peace and prosperity of the city, our, vo- our view will change from an us and them mentality to it's just us. Once you realize you're p- actually part of the city, the Israelites had to realize, you know, now they were actually part of Babylon because they lived there. God can use, use and bring change. As each of us reach out to the one in front of us that were just his hands and feet, if we take the time to notice people, to stop and look them in the eyes so that they know they matter, we take time to love them, we'll see the cities change. As I mentioned, the world may say that Seattle is dying. There's just way too many trapped In the prison of addiction, there's no hope. But last week, when um, Chris's friend Richard McAdams was here, I think we have a picture of him, he so beautifully reminded us, there is hope and his name is Jesus. He said, Jesus died on the cross so we could be in relationship with our Father. But not only that, but we could be in right relationship with each other. Shalom. He shared that he's beginning to notice that the city is taking notice of the relationship that the Union Gospel Mission has and that they've started looking to UGM to help them. More attention is coming to homelessness. More attention is coming to the addiction, he said. For for to actually make a dent in this, there has got to be a relationship part. People have got to start stopping and asking and actually seeing people on the streets. The city before wouldn't even take notice of UGM being a Christian organization. Now they often call us and ask us to help. The city has been watching and seeing, and without noting it, they are realizing the good news because it's being played out in front of them. UGM has been praying for the peace and prosperity of Seattle for years, and Seattle's changing, one person at a time. 
Look at us here in Casino Road. There's been years of prayer for peace and prosperity for this community. Look at what God's doing. He's bringing unity and collaboration through organizations like South Everett Foursquare, Casino Road Kids Ministries, Hand in Hand, City Life. Yes. And now with Child Strive and the Casino Road Collaborative, followers of Christ and not yet followers of Christ are linking arms with a common goal to bring shalom to this community. We can make a difference because God is true to his word. And he gave us the key in Jeremiah 29.7, whether we feel like it or not, whether we like what's going on around us or not, as we choose to take notice, stop and see people, as we take the time to bring Jesus into their space, gives them the chance to encounter him. And their lives will be changed. And then just like Zacchaeus, they can turn right around and do the same thing. Who can then turn around and do the same thing? Who can then turn around and do the same thing? Because as the city prospers, as this Casino Road community prospers, as Everett prospers, we too here in this room will prosper. So I have something for you to think about as we close. Ask God to show you where there's areas in your life, whether you work, where you live, where you interact, where's the specific areas that you can be praying for shalom? In the Amplified Bible, it communicates Jeremiah 29.7 as, and seek, inquire for, require and request the peace and welfare of the city to which I have caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it. For in the welfare of the city in which you live, you will have welfare. I thought, huh. Welfare. I looked up welfare, and in the King James Dictionary, it defined welfare as the exemption from misfortune, sickness, calamity, or evil, the enjoyment of health and the common blessings of life, prosperity, and happiness, as it applies to persons, societies, civil governments, and states. I was like, so when we combine shalom with welfare... Everything changes. Everyone changes. You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.